0: But the American perspective is very important now to the opposition. If the Americans came in and said they, we respect democracy, this regime has to let political prisoners go. Otherwise, we're out of here. and We're imposing sanctions again. That would have a big impact on Lukashenko regime.
1: Howdy there, dear listeners. You are listening to The Slavic Connection. I am here with my good friend, Tom.
2: Howdy, Matt. Uh, I'm appropriating your howdy from Boston.
1: Well, we just had a fantastic talk with Dr. David Marples. Dr. Marples is a professor at the University of Alberta, 3,000 miles north of us.
2: Austin is inexplicably in the central time zone, and so is Alberta, so.
1: So, Tom, what did we talk about today with Dr. Marbles?
2: We talked about, obviously, Belarus, but focused more on the Lukashenko aspect and what his role has been characterized by, how it's grown, and I think the the
0: biggest soundbite is... Lukashenko has no future.
1: We're not seeing this from Lukashenko's eyes very well, and I think that he really helped us with that. So, enjoy.
0: First, just a few words
2: about our programs. Listening to the Slavic Connection brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Marples, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Matt, you want to lead yeah, off yeah, and I, then I'll, you a few
1: ups. Sure, I'll kick us off. So, Dr. Marples, you know, we there's these events going on in Belarus. They're getting a lot of coverage in the press, but I think one of the things that's being left out right now is there's no there's no context. It's like these events just erupted in Belarus and there's kind of no other history to, to really understand them. And so I think mm-hmm. that something that you could really help us is understanding what the state of Belarus was before this and what is Lukashenko. I mean, we often use Putinism to describe Putin's regime in Russia, but is there something like a, a Lukashenko-ism? And if so, what is it? And what are kind of the features of Lukashenko's regime that differentiate it from other authoritarian regimes in the former Soviet Union?
0: Well, Lukashenko came to power in 1994 in what was really a democratic election. I mean, Belarus had been independent for three years. They just introduced a new constitution, a constitution that gave the president the right to be president for five years and then serve an additional term if he was re-elected or she was re-elected. And Lukashenko won this election, perhaps on the basis of a committee on corruption that he'd headed in the parliament. He was sort of the interim leader of that committee, but he put forth the names of about 50 people he felt were corrupt and should be investigated. And among them were the prime minister and the head of the parliament. He put both of those on the list. And eventually the head of the parliament had to resign on on charges that were actually fairly lightweight, I would say, if not completely trumped up. But nevertheless, Lukashenko won that election in the summer, and he came to power on a policy of being very pro-Russian, sort of nostalgic, go back to the past, we're sorry the Soviet Union ended. But within a couple of years, he changed the constitution, it given the president more powers, and he began to rule as more or less a dictator. He reduced the powers of the parliament, um, and it was the numbers of people in the parliament went down from 260 to 112, the 112 being mainly the people he thought would support him. So a lot of the deputies lost their seats at that time. And I would say by 1999, there was a conflict again with the opposition, with the parliament. And he came through that one as well by removing his opponents, sometimes by actually just eliminating them. And he'd had new elections in 2001. And from 2001 all the way down to 2015, he had a very clear pattern of how he was elected. There would be initiative groups set up. There would be an election commission led by his close ally, Lidzia Yarmashina. The results would be known sort of ahead of time. He always won with between 75 and 85% of the vote. The opposition candidates, such as they were, would get around 2 to 5% at most. And these elections were carefully staged by this. The Belarusian people didn't seem to be too upset about this. Lukashenko, made what he called a contract with the people, that he would provide the services they needed and they would vote for him, keep him in office. So he was regarded as their father, a kind of Batka in in Belarusian. This was how he maintained his power. And he was generally popular for a while, but he managed to stay popular because Russia's policy was to export oil and gas at reduced prices to Belarus, where it was refined and resold to, to the market in Europe. And this way they would make huge profits. The economy was really bouncing compared to, say, Ukraine next door, which is a much bigger country with more resources. But it only worked as long as Russia kept it up and, and Russia and Belarus got along well. In 1999, he signed a union of Belarus and Russia, or Russia and Belarus, I should say, with Boris Yeltsin, the then president of Russia. It was a fairly meaningless thing. I mean, nothing came of it. He also joined some other entities that were headed by Russia, such as the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Eurasian Economic Union. And all these were Russian-led, but Belarus played a part. When Putin took over in Russia from Yeltsin, um, he made it plain that he, he wasn't really interested in this union unless it was a union where Russia took advantage of its resources and area and perhaps Belarus could be a Western province of Russia. And he actually said something very similar to that in 2002. And around about 2003, 2004, you could see that the relations were not getting along very smoothly. And by 2008, there was an economic crisis and Russia was starting to raise oil and gas prices and stopped giving Belarus such privileges. Lukashenko got very angry and there was some very public rhetorical exchanges between, I would say by 2008, it was with Dmitry Medvedev as president of Russia. But by 2012, it was Putin as well, when Putin started to serve his third term in office. So their relations were a little bit shaky. But nevertheless, the the bond with the people was maintained as long as the economy kept up. There was always an opposition. The opposition could maybe get about 25% of the votes in a free election and that's a substantial number. Lukashenko's own popularity varied between about 28, 29, and about 45, somewhere in that range. And all went well, I think, until 2017, when I noticed that Lukashenko came up with a policy that was rather unwise. He decided to put a tax on people who only worked for six months of the year. You know, if they had to do a minimum of six months full-time labor, Otherwise, they were taxed. So it was actually taxing the unemployed.
1: And that was kind of a callback to the Soviet era, right? To the Yadstva, I believe it's called? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, it was. And it was called the Parasite Laws. And this elicited mass protests, mass demonstrations throughout Belarus for the first time. In the opposition, if they were lucky, could get perhaps 5,000 out to the streets, 10,000 if it was an election night or something like that. But these were protests of about that amount in each of the major cities of Belarus. And this has not been seen before. And Lukashenko decided to back down. He eventually shelved that law. It was never introduced. I also noticed there was a big controversy over a mass burial site from the Stalin era, at party where people who were looking after the site were, were mainly from an opposition party, the, the conservative Christian party of the Popular Front. And they started to put up crosses around that site to mark the victims of Stalin in 1937 to 1941. The regime compromised to the extent of agreeing to a small monument, although they never showed up to commemorate it when it was open. And this small monument stayed there. But in April of 2019, the government removed all these crosses by force. They sent in bulldozers, smashed down the crosses around this burial site. And this caused great concern, not only among the opposition, but in society generally, including in the Orthodox and Catholic churches who felt that smashing crosses was sacrilegious, and many people felt the same way. And they were the two things I noticed before the 2020 elections that seemed to bring about, catalyze some changes in society that were probably deep under the surface at the time. The other thing that made the difference, I think, was that COVID-19 came to Belarus just as it came everywhere. And Lukashenko refused to recognize it. He said it was a psychosis. It was invented by the West. There was nothing to worry about. People should drink vodka, they should go to the sauna, go to the countryside, fine. And this upset people because eventually about 60,000 people got this disease, quite a substantial number for the size of the population. It was still growing, but the death toll was kept extremely low. It never went up of more than about 450, 460 people. Even though in countries like, let's say, Sweden, for example, where also no substantive measures were taken against the virus the numbers were, were about 50 60 times higher so these i think was the background to the election and they began to undermine this bond with the people plus the economy was beginning to to have serious problems as a result of russia ending the subsidies on oil and gas prices and in fact put in a tax on energy sent to yeah. belarus so these profits by refining could no longer be made So Belarus was badly in need of foreign loans and international help. So that's a long answer to your question, but I'll I'll stop there.
2: It's definitely a big question. I don't think there's a a succinct way to answer it. But I I do want to bring up sort of the comparison between the sort of political stability in Belarus towards the musical chairs in Ukraine of their leadership since in the post-Soviet era it seems like the relationship with Russia and you know the economic benefits that come from that have been the main variables that have caused stability in one and instability in the other. Do you think there's anything about Lukashenko's actual political, I, I want to say gifts, even though that's a sort of a misleading term here, do you think it is really the external factors that has bred kind of a less political culture and uh, has allowed him to stay in power for so long?
0: Yeah, I would say two things. The first thing, He's a very clever political operator. He's a populist, but he's a populist who can understand what the people want to hear and address those concerns directly. He speaks in a kind of colloquial Russian. He does know Belarusian, but he knows knows Russian better. A very colloquial language, a local language that is easily understood by people. And he was so much liked that uh, some of the elderly in the population even had icons of Lukashenko in their homes, in their, in their cottages. So he could do that, but he also was a very skillful man- maneuver between Europe on the one hand and Russia on the other. He could find a way in between. This is something that Ukraine failed to do after Kuchma, after Leonid Kuchma's presidency, when Yushchenko took over and immediately antagonized the Russians by Moving towards more nationalistic perspective of the past and, and even the future. Lukashenko kept to this line of being a sort of pro Soviet state that respected the Soviet contributions, recognized World War II as this kind of identity former of Belarus, which appealed to people because they could still look back. They had ancestors who died in the war for sure. They'd suffered more than just about any other air population of Eastern Europe, perhaps Poland on the same kind of scale, but still very high numbers. That's that's just the one hand. The second thing is he's a completely ruthless leader who will stop at nothing to stay in power and whose main goal in life is to stay in power. He had bigger goals at one time, and he wanted to use the Russia Union and Belarus to take over this union himself as a sort of ruler of Russia on a general scale all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But Putin made it clear that that was not on the agenda for him. And that the ruler of this union of Belarus and Russia was a minor figure and was always going to be a minor figure. So, with that ambition gone, Belarus was was basically what he had left. So, first of all, he removed anybody who could oppose him. He got rid of all newspaper editors of newspapers that might write contrary things, physically eliminated enemies that, that posed a real danger. So, in 1999, that was the potential head of the parliament. And the head of the parliament, Shiretsky, at that time in 99, fled to Lithuania. And his place was taken by the deputy head, Viktor Hanchar, who had actually been, ironically, the campaign organizer for Lukashenko in 1994. He was kidnapped off the street and killed. And you see this repetition, periodically, of extreme actions in order to stay in power. He stayed in power in in 19. In 2001, after that, he was not really threatened again until 2010, I would say. 2006, there was a a brief occupation of a central square, October Square in Minsk, that lasted a few days. But in 2010, there was a mass grouping in Independence Square in which the other presidential candidates were taking part. There was a violent crackdown then. 700 people were arrested. And seven of the nine candidates for president ended up in jail on the same night. So that's the kind of scale, again, we're looking at extreme actions. And I think when it's necessary, he's used those, he's used every force that he's got in his power to stay in power. And so although he is popular, he is a clever politician. I think this time he's run run out of ideas and his popularity levels have dropped alarmingly from around 35% the start of the election campaign to somewhere around 10 or 15% now. I don't think that they're any higher than that. They may even be lower. So for a number of reasons, I think the situation that allowed him to be popular have now disappeared.
1: For me, you know, I look at the situation and I know that Belarus had its so-called "Genes revolution in 2006, which you, I believe, referred to, where there was these big, these large protests but, you know, it, it wasn't enough to make any big difference, and it was cracked down very quickly. This time, it seems to me that the difference is that there's a lot more people. And the only thing that I can contribute that ability to mobilize effectively to is social media. And we saw social media have a huge role in over in Ukraine as well. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the role of social media in this, whatever we're calling it, revolution in Belarus, different from previous anti-Lukashenko events that we've seen before.
0: Yeah, social media has gradually grown as a force in Belarus. It has an important IT sector of its own. I mean, this is the one area where privatized, which has really developed dramatically in the Lukashenko era, even though he's not responsible for it. And I would say in this election, uh, first of all, it allowed for mass demonstrations, despite control of the general media by the government, That is, the government would control the major newspapers, it controlled the television services, but it couldn't control social media, even though it tried to cut off the sources. In particular, the Nexta site, or Nectar, I should say, in Russian site, Telegram Agency is the one that set up the demonstrations in such a way that it can relay messages to cell phones with such rapidity that nothing the government could do can really cut them out. And they proved this time and time again. And even from the beginning of the elections, Tichonovsky, Siahi Tichonovsky, was the one with the massive YouTube following. He was running for for president. And even though he was arrested on really the most flimsy pretext, uh, his wife took up the cause. And she also used the same kind of devices that he'd got the teams he'd already got in place to call meetings along with her two colleagues. And it's made the difference, actually. It's made a big difference. And it really stood out in one of the the demonstrations. I think I may have got this wrong, but it may have been the August 13th one, where the authorities were planning for a crackdown on downtown as soon as the protests had gathered. And then they gathered somewhere else. They gathered around the the Stella Monument uh, outside the Great Patriotic Museum or instead. And there were no police there. And time and time again, they managed to avoid being cut off at the very start of a demonstration. And this is really-
1: And they couldn't have done that in 2006 because just the tools weren't there,
0: right? They couldn't have done it in 2006 and they managed to get these demonstrators off of October Square and to march all the way down to Independence Square where they could be nicely trapped. They got people all around there ready to take over. But when you're operating, I mean, ironically, the Stalinist nature of Minsk and its architecture means that these streets are very hard to police. They're very wide, and you can get masses of people going together in lines down these streets. It's not like narrow corridors that can be cut off at the end. So it all worked in the favor, and also social media is generally the preserve of, let's say, people under 30. Generally, I'm not saying this; it's totally true, otherwise I wouldn't be here, but I think you could say generally that you would get a younger generation taking advantage of this. (laughs) And you've got 66-year-old Lukashenko and his cronies who were all in that sort of 50, 60 age group. And they're just too slow to react. And I think that's fairly obvious. And that's not to say they haven't reacted, of course, because they've come down with massive force. But it doesn't seem to me to have worked because the, the following weekend, you know, the people come out again. I mean, this hybrid kind of warfare was very much practiced by Russia in Ukraine as well. So the Russians have also got a very strong handle on this. and problem with demonstrators, I think, is they've got to deal with Russia as well as as Belarus. It's not just a one-way thing. We've only got one source of power. In Belarus, there are now two because Russia has definitely intruded. It has definitely marked its presence. And you're not going to get around Russia by using social media because they have all the tricks at hand as well. They're probably more advanced in the stage that they are at than Belarus uh, opposition forces. But I think it's not something that's been mastered by the Belarusian government even now. They've not really shown any effective control over the social media or an understanding even really, I think, of its place in things like elections.
2: So I'm interested, obviously, to tie in the Russian angle here. At the start of the protest, this was clearly not an anti It wasn't anti-Russian in nature, certainly not like the 2014 Ukrainian protests. It was much more anti-regime. Now that Russia has become so much more involved and sort of unable to hide their support for like Lukashenko, do you see that this morphing into a more pro-European, more pro-Western movement? Or do you think it's going to be sort of united and let's get rid of Lukashenko and then We'll see what we have then.
0: Well, I I see Russia's position is fairly ambivalent. They have not come down too heavily on the the opposition or too in favor of Lukashenko. They've done some small things. They've given him a small loan. By the standards of the day, 1.5 billion is a very small loan. Uh, China gave 10 billion a few years ago, for example, to Belarus. It's just enough to keep things going. It's not enough to change things or really stabilize the regime. I think Russia's looking very closely at Lukashenko and thinking whether this irritant of a president could be replaced by somebody who's a bit more compliant and a bit more pro-Russian. If the opposition moves markedly in favor of Ukraine, then I think Russia will react much more firmly in, in a major way. But at the moment, Russia hasn't reacted, even though Putin has said publicly that Belarus is even closer to Russia than Ukraine is, as far as he's concerned and that there's no way that he would allow Belarus to break into this kind of pro-European or pro-NATO direction. And I believe that. I don't think that would happen. And I think uh, Sikhanovskaya knows, Svitlana knows, that this is the case. And she's been very careful, even when she's talking to the European Union, not to say that this movement is anti-Russian in any way. The only thing that would suggest that it's, it is moving a little in that direction, is the use of the national flag, the white, red, white flag, which was the national flag between 1991 and 95. It dates back much further, but it was also used as the anti-Soviet flag in World War II. And I think that is something that the Russians are aware of. I don't think probably most people holding those flags know much about that period. It seemed to them that this is just their flag, is to differentiate from the flag used by the regime which is the sort of old Soviet flag with the hammer and sickle taken off. That flag was only introduced in 1995 by Lukashenko. So it is anti-regime, that's where it stands right now. If Lukashenko goes, then I think the options become much broader. Where does it go then? Does it try and introduce democratic change? Does it move in a kind of pro-European direction, at least, According to the terms of the Eastern Partnership, let's say, where you would have free elections, you'd have free parliament, you would change the constitution or either move it back to 94, or actually have some amendments made to the present one that would bring it closer to 1994 with a proper court, constitutional court, that makes decisions independently. They're really what you need, I think, for Belarus to move forward. The question is whether Russia would allow that. Russia has ample means to extend influence over Belarus. It's got economic means. For example, oil and gas prices, the new nuclear power station in Belarus, which is ready to start, is entirely based on Russian technology and finance. You have the Russia-Belarus Union in place. Um, You have other exports that are important for Belarus industries. Then you have the military maneuvers. Belarus and Russia, both armies, have been taking part in this Zapad exercise which mimics what would happen if NATO made some kind of attacking move towards Belarus. For example, one of the exercises was to invade Latvia as a precautionary measure in the event of a NATO advance. So the two militaries are very much tied together. So the security forces have very close ties. Um, at one time, I'm not sure because I've not come into to Belarus on the train recently. I always fly there now, which is compulsory. But the trains used to be monitored by Russian KGB as well as Belarusian KGB, or FSB I should say in the case of Russia. So these security forces are fairly tied together as well. So it can be very difficult for Belarus to break free of this. Plus the Russian media is listened to by 80% of Belarusians as the first thing they listen to rather than the boring Belarusian media, which is like listening to North Korean media, You know, dreadful stuff. So everybody listens to Russian television. So Russian television is Russian propaganda. I mean, there is nothing else. When you hear the Russian news, it's Russian news. It's not news, world news, in an independent kind of manner, open to interpretation. It's Russian news. So most Belarusians, for example, today, believe the takeover of Crimea was justified from Ukraine. More Belarusians think that than than Lukashenko. I mean, Lukashenko sort of wavered on the issue. I should going back a little bit, by the way, I should mention that from about 2015-16, you've seen in, in Belarus a mild nationalism that's been fostered by the regime to differentiate Belarusian interests from those of Russia. And you would see slogans for a happy Belarus, for a prosperous Belarus, all over the place. And I think these had some impact uh, on the population. And they've also had a kind of backlash in that most Belarusians don't want to become part of Russia even though they're subjected to all this Russian influence. They don't want to get involved in wars all over the place, Um, such as the Donbass, for example, or Syria. They simply don't want to do that. Their interests are exclusively in Belarus. So Lukashenko has to be given some credit for developing this national identity of Belarusians, but at the same time, it's an identity that is very much steeped in the past and World War II victory and things like that, which do tie to Russia. So I think he's, he's sort of given a little bit of impetus to the opposition movement to see themselves as Belarusians first and Russia as an important partner, but not someone who should be dominating what they do. I see a lot of problems ahead, actually, quite frankly. Whichever way it goes, I see problems ahead. And it's difficult to see how it could go forward In a peaceful fashion unless you could get some kind of compromise between the opposition the Europeans and the Russians all together and this would involve a lot of input from places like Germany and Italy which have good or at least better relations with Russia than do some of the states on the Belarusian borderlands like Poland and the Baltic states where I would say relations about
1: Yeah, let's, let's get into some of those possibilities. Obviously, I think there's too many to touch on in our time constraints, but within the options that we would consider a some kind of victory for the pro-democratic forces, what are the steps that you feel are more, most likely to achieve that? I mean, I have at least two in, in my mind. One is, you know, NECTA has put a lot of effort into this, okay, we're going to bring down the regime economically. And so we're going to make these black and white lists for businesses. You're going to stop paying your taxes. You're going to pay your utility bills as late as possible. And the other one that they're getting really into now that I think is actually more potent and I would like to hear your thoughts on is they've been leaking the lists of the interior ministry employees. You know, basically the understanding is that these once these people are de-anonymized, you know, they're going to be shamed and maybe even threatened. And so I think that that latter option is a really scary proposition for them, given the fact that I've seen the stories, you know, there's there's the people, the known defectors, people who have left. And then there's also people who don't follow orders, but try to remain undercover within these organizations. So, I mean, do you feel that the opposition could be successful economically or do you feel that this de-anonymization and protest is really the the way more likely to actually achieve a, a successful outcome for the protesters?
0: Well, they're both critical. I was more optimistic about the economic one a few weeks ago when it looked like there would be mass strikes through all the big factories. I mean, they've they've had some impact already on production. Um, And it could, you know, if if the people do come out onto the streets in a major way from the factories, particularly things like the potash factory uh, and, and the tractor factories, then it would make a significant difference. And there's certainly a lot of disaffection there for the regime. No question about that. The unmasking of the of the riot police that Oman is a brilliant move. As you say, it's a frightening move because it makes you wonder just where this could start. If people's identity is so easy to reveal, and how much information they can get by simply moving in on websites, moving in on individual sites in this kind of fashion. I
1: should say I should say quickly that if I understand correctly, for now they only have the interior ministry yeah. uh, officials, but. Who knows if they could find the KGB (laughs) officials, they could find army, you know, whatever. Um, So there could be so much more out there to be leaked.
0: Well, the interior ministry is a big one. You know, KGB would be another big one. They they work together. They're more or less in the same building as you probably know. I think that would be a big one. If they can create some kind of split within this elite of the security forces, that would be maybe even a decisive factor. It would allow them, in fact, to you know, to break the regime's hold over the streets. And people certainly don't want to be revealed. You know, that's fairly obvious. When you take the mask off, they run. They don't stop and hit someone. They just run.
1: But the videos are incredible. Yeah, uh...
0: yeah they just run. And this is something that, you know, you never saw in previous elections ever. You know, you never saw this kind of confrontation. These people, um, I mean, I read an interview with one of these Oman guys, and, you know, he just gets paid three times his regular salary. You know, sometimes he doesn't sleep. You know, he's very irritable by the time he gets to the street because you have to wake him up again three hours later and get him back again. But he gets this salary. And this is really the basis of why he does this. You know, he can feed his family. But if he gets, if he gets his head kicked in, as we were saying, <laughs> in some parts, that's, that's a different story. You know, people are intimidated. They don't come back.
1: Or, or if they start spray painting his apartment door. Yeah, or- yeah you know, other harassment or they, you know, they, they find out who their kids are, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this just, the pressure could go such a far way.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's another, there's another factor as well. And that is you get these sort of numbers in the streets and physical intimidation doesn't always work. I mean, A, there's too many people to attack, but B, at some point they might fight back. And I've seen this discussed in various online places, you know, to what extent are we going to carry on like this? And at what point do we get some weapons and start hitting these guys? Um, And that could happen. I mean, they're not like Ukrainians. They're not as militant as Ukrainians. They're not as nationalistic, but they are well-organized. I think people can be provoked into violence and that it can happen in Belarus just like elsewhere, and that would change the stakes as well. And then Lukashenko would be completely dependent on, on Russian help to stay in power. But I also see a more peaceful solution, and that is that if the Europeans and Russians could work together, then there's possibility for intermediary help in this confrontation. Because left to himself, Lukashenko will not compromise, he will not go into a dialogue, he will not discuss sharing power. Russia wants a change of constitution, which is also a little bit ominous. The idea of the coordinating council was not to change the constitution immediately. I mean, but this idea of changing the constitution might play into Russia's hands more directly by empowering the Russia-Belarus Union to take over in certain circumstances. I don't know. I mean, there, there, as you say, it's a different stage. I mean, Lukashenko's not gone yet, and he's still there. I mean, he's, he's still in power, but he's he's weakened, and he's more dependent on, on Russia, which is probably what where Moscow would like it to stay, if it could stay there. I also talked to someone from Minsk, And she pointed out that when the students are back in college, there's also a lot of pressure can be put on them, not only on them, but on their parents. You know, their careers, future careers are going to be imperiled if they go back on the streets on Sundays. Parents could lose their jobs. They could lose their places in college. And not everyone wants to move abroad. You know, there are thousands of Belarusians in Poland and in Czech Republic and in Lithuania. But most of them are still there at the State University, at the Linguistic University, and places like that. And they would lose their careers unless Lukashenko goes. And that's a big compromise on their part, and for their parents to take, that they could be kicked out of school.
2: Everyone wants to know how this ends. I'm curious, when does this end? And do you think these protests can last through the winter, or do you see there being a lag, and they somehow have the energy to renew it when the
0: weather is more hospitable. Do you think that's realistic? It's possible. I mean, the, the falls there can be quite nasty. The winters are really horrible. But yeah, I think this thing could last for months rather than weeks. And I always felt that Lukashenko would be difficult to remove if he didn't go voluntarily. He didn't sort of get frightened and leave. You may have been thinking about that right on August the 9th itself. He looked like he was, right? There were rumors that he was invited to Turkey and he was going to go to Turkey. And
2: there were a lot of people looking at flight traffic from it. Yeah, so like, oh, yeah. there's a flight going to Turkey. We saw a helicopter leave, but yeah, yeah,
0: he's... Yeah. And walking around with a with a gun, you know, even if it's not primed to shoot, it's just a menacing look for a president, right? You walk around with a gun, you're in military uniform. He seems to be somewhat unbalanced much more so than he used to be. He's always done eccentric things. But he seems now to be a little bit unbalanced. And this NATO exercise is just like blaming Russia as sort of bringing in the Wagner Group at the beginning of this election to foment revolution with the opposition. I mean, where did that come from? I mean, what kind of mind could devise that? Uh, The Wagner Group would help the opposition. And then arresting them, you know. I mean, at one time, can you imagine if the Ukrainians had done that, what the reaction would have been? And Belarus got away with it, thanks to Putin thinking, well, you know, the guy's off his head, he's going to do crazy things, but we'll just let it go and see what happens. And this is not how Putin normally reacts to a situation. So I do think it will die down at some point, but you could still get things like flash mobs at any time. That, I think, would probably be the way to go rather than publicly announce, you know, March of the Heroes or whatever you want to call it. And it would be unsettling as well to to the regime. But I think after that, it's going to be a question of refusing to work, refusing to do this, refusing to respect the regime. Above all, refusing to recognize Lukashenko as the president. It would work much better if the Europeans gave him a bit more help. And with all due respect, the Americans as well. I mean, the Americans have just opened a new embassy in Belarus. They've just got a new ambassador to Belarus after, what, about 10 years or something like that. They've had four or five people at your embassy in Minsk for the longest time. Now they're suddenly full-fledged. And this was a long buildup, you know, with Bolton going there and then Pompeo was there. Clearly a lot of interest on the American side on developing relations. And then this happened. But the American perspective is very important now to the opposition. If the Americans came in and said, they we respect democracy, this regime has to let political prisoners go. Otherwise, we're out of here and we're imposing sanctions again. That would have a big that would have a big impact on Lukashenko regime. The Europeans, you know, they're talking about, well, you know, Cyprus won't let us vote. Cyprus stopped this. Well, I'm sorry, but you can still do things without Cyprus getting involved, right? I mean, Germany on its own could take steps that would compromise Belarus. So could the Dutch, who have massive trade with Belarus. So the Europeans are are dragging their feet on this even though the regime has done much worse things than they've done in past elections. I mean, they've killed people, they've tortured people, they have something like 10,000 people massed into prisons that can hold maybe three or 4,000. This is on a mass scale is taking place in the middle of Europe and you're just ignoring it. Even though this country is supposedly in the Eastern partnership and following our mandates and having a dialogue with us, there's an EU office in the center of Minsk. Why why are they so silent? I don't know. I mean, how far can you compromise future relations by giving up totally on human rights and democratic initiatives? I don't know why there's so little response. And without some response, it will die. It will definitely die.
1: Let's think a little bit more about these possibilities if the protest does kind of die down and fail in a way. I think the opposition has done something really smart and interesting where they've kind of hedged their bets. So uh Ms. Tikhanovskaya says we've already won, we've already changed Belarus, right? And when I hear that, it's it's clear that she's hedging. It's even if our protests fail in the short term to accomplish something, we've still changed the minds of people in the long term. And something will change. The country will be different. And so I guess my question is how does Lukashenko ism, how does he change his governing style in a longer term? assuming he survives this new reality. I know they've launched these constitution things. I mean, how will this end up assuming Lukashenko gets everything he wants as he kind of slow walks this?
0: Well, I would say up front that Lukashenko has no future. Has no future as political leader and president of Belarus. And it's just a question of time when he steps down because he cannot go back to what he was. No one respects him anymore. No one trusts him anymore. He's heartily disliked. The economy has is is become more or less a basket case, it's like Ukraine was a few years ago. Actually, Ukraine still in some difficulties today. But I, I think Belarus has is, is got to move forward. And it can only move forward if the presidency changes. No matter what else happens, that president has to be changed. So he can drag his feet, he can drag on, he can use these brutal methods. He maybe last six months to a year. I can't see him lasting any longer than that. And in that, that'll be a very bitter six months to a year as well. But he, even the pressure that's being mounted by the regime cannot be sustained. I mean, you cannot keep prisons full for this long. You cannot even feed this number of people properly for this length of time. The army is in a state of high alert. I mean, again, how long can you keep an army in a state of high alert? It's not wartime. You know, no one is invading Belarus, no one's threatening from the outside, no matter what he says. So these kind of things will put a lot of pressure on him to step down. And I think it's really a question of how he does it. And he would maybe like to do it with some dignity and be kind of remembered as someone who'd done good for Belarus in fact that's not going to happen either he's going to be remembered as you know someone who really made a lot of mistakes in the last few years and someone who's hated by most people for his brutality that's his legacy now I heard you know my my good colleague Grigory Joffer who is much more sympathetic to Lukashenko believes that Lukashenko alone is is responsible for national identity in Belarus. I beg to differ from him very strongly because I don't think that's true. I think Lukashenko really wanted to stay in power and not to have Moscow hanging over him at every moment, but he's failed to do that. he's actually played into the hands of Russia with the moves that he's made and he's done. So it's just a question of how to do it and whether it can be done peacefully in any fashion.
1: And how do you think he will do it? Will he name a successor?
0: I mean, he's talked about changing the Constitution, but then he talked about he was going to call a national assembly. These are only called after elections, usually, or before elections. And they're entirely made up of paid members of his entourage who come for a few days and vote whatever he wants and then go home again and have a nice few meals and good holiday in Minsk at the same time. So he's never talked about constitutional changes where you would get an actual democratic parliament elected as, say, the 1990 parliament, which was the last democratic parliament in Belarus. That's never been on his agenda. So he doesn't want to do things in that way. I think you're more likely to see him dragged out by Putin, just saying, you know, you have to leave now. Otherwise, you know, we're going to turn on you as well.
1: It makes it sound like he has no long-term plan for survival at all, or even his desired transfer of power.
0: No, he doesn't want to transfer power. What he wants is for for Putin to come out 100% in his favor with the possibility of a full invasion if it doesn't work out. A military invasion followed by a renewed presidency of Lukashenko. And it's quite clear that Putin has no thoughts about that whatsoever. And if Putin did come in with with a full invasion, he probably annexed Belarus outright as, as another Western region of Russia or far western region of Russia or whatever. That's what would happen to Belarus. Nobody wants that in Belarus, but that's what would happen. You've got nine and a half million people, you've got 145 million in Russia. You know, it's not even an equal contest in any respect. And the Russian army is highly efficient, much more efficient than any army of that region, all of them included, with the exception of NATO. So The options are to hang on for a year, arrest several thousand more people, arrest everybody in the coordinating council if you can, but so what? What if you do that? Tsikhanovskaya is still at large, and she's much more effective actually outside the country, and she's kind of grown into that position. I mean, I've been really impressed with some of the speeches. When I first saw her at the beginning of this election, I thought there's no way she would ever be elected, and probably that's what Lukashenko thought too. She is now a very viable candidate in any election that takes place in in Belarus, as is Kolesnikova. Kolesnikova is also a formidable political player if she gets out of prison. I'm not sure about about, uh, Veronika Sabkala. I didn't see it quite on the same level as the other two, but those two are a major force. This is great, you know, it's great to see these people come into Belarusian political scene who are not from the traditional political parties, who were going nowhere. I mean, all their candidates have never got anywhere in an election since 94. And this is what happens to opposition candidates because they're so predictable and Lukashenko can figure them out. He cannot figure out the opposition now because he doesn't know where it's coming from. And all the players, I would say, were either based on social media or they were from the elite, like Babarika, for example, biggest Russian bank in Belarus. He was head of that for years. And Subkala who was head of the high tech part, which was the future of Belarus is there and the finance of Belarus is on the other hand. And they're both running against Lukashenko. So nothing will take place again as it did in the past. And that's why I think, you know, the days are numbered.
2: I think that's kind of a, a good note to start tying things up. We're approaching the end of our time. I do want to end by hearing about your newest book, Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. (laughs) A bit of a little whiplash for our listeners, but I'm sure that would be a helpful read for people trying to understand the region.
0: It would actually. I mean, I, I, you know, I had all this time off here with COVID-19. I was on leave and I had, I was supposed to be in Belarus, but I wasn't, no possibility of travel. So I wrote this book and it's based on on memoirs. So it goes all the way back to my early life, but most of it is devoted to time in Ukraine and Belarus and the changes that have taken place there. So I think if you want a background, you know, to how the opposition developed in Belarus, um, the background to Maidan in Ukraine, if you like, as well, and also how diasporas play into our modern conception of states like Ukraine. Um, so that's what I explored in the memoir, but they go up to the present. And most recently I was working on Kurapaty and other stalinist crimes in belarus and thinking along the lines that if belarusians could get out of this mindset of world war ii they would look at life quite differently than than they do right now and i, I do think that's the case that they're still looking a little bit to the past and they have to look to the future and base the modern state and modernity in belarus on something a little bit more advanced a little bit more broad in terms of its general perspective so that's really where where I ended it. And I, I went a long way in this book in a few pages. And I sent it to a publisher who, who you know, he allows you to buy the book, on uh, to get the book online for free if you don't have the resources to buy it or you don't feel like buying it. And of course, I, I don't care either way. I'm not trying to make money out of the book. I just hope it can be read by as many people as possible. But I do feel, in the in the circumstances of Belarus, which was virtually unknown to many people, this this might be a good way to start in a non academic manner, because I wrote this book for the general public, not for the not for academia.
1: Wow. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to. In this episode, Doctor Marbles, this has been really awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, and I want to say I'm so glad that you brought up uh, the role of diaspora communities because we've gotten such pleasant feedback from the Belarusian community in Texas recently. And it's clear that they're engaged, they're interested, and they want to see more people talking about, you know, what's going on in the country in the past, present, and future uh, of Belarus. And so it's been really nice to get that encouragement. And I think it just echoes what, what you were saying just now. So thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. Anytime. Nice to talk to you.
2: Thank you for listening, everybody. That was Dr. David Marples. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Marples. And please send us feedback, only positive, about Matt's beard because it's getting tremendous. <laughs> we hope you keep listening and we'll have many more episodes for you. Enjoy. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavexradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: Thank you. I feel like my intros are becoming more and more like Tom's with every...
2: You uh, had like a little Mr. Rogers vibe there. Like, <laughs> you had to take off your sweater, put on your sneakers.